the angel of God who was going before the Israelite army moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, Let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth as the Egyptians fled before it. The Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. This is the Word of God for the people of God. So we're reading out of chapter 14 earlier before where we began to read. The 14th chapter tells us that Pharaoh had decided to let the people go, allow the Israelites to go on their way. That's good news. But then just a little bit later, Pharaoh changes his mind and decides, no, we shouldn't have let them go. You hear it in verse 5 of the 14th chapter. Pharaoh says, what have we done letting Israel leave our service? He realizes he still wants them to work for him. He still wants them to be slave labor, to do his work. And so he decides that he's going to send the army after them. They begin to pursue the Hebrew people. They catch up with them as they near the, near the eastern border of Egypt where there are a series of lakes and waterways. The Israelite people have not crossed the water yet, and they see the Egyptians coming, and they begin to feel the squeeze of this army coming right at them and backing them up against the water. And they doubt whether or not God can help. I told you last week that all through this great saga of God delivering the people is they move between believing God can help and doubting that God can help. You can hear it again in this story today. Again, before where we read, but still in the 14th chapter, back in verse 10, you hear their doubt. 
The narrator says, as Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Can you hear the doubt taking over once again? I don't think it's too strong to say it might even by this point in the story turn into despair. Where they're feeling like there is no way out and there's no help on the horizon And then not only that they're going to be captured, but they now fear that they're going to be killed, slaughtered right here, right now. They see no way of escape, no way out. They have fallen into despair. They have lost all hope. But it's not only slaves being pursued by a slaveholder that can fall into despair. It can happen to any of us. We can find ourselves in a place in our lives where despair takes over. It might be one close to us who has betrayed us. It might be someone whom we have trusted that turns on us. We might feel stuck in a dead-end job, or we've changed jobs hoping it will be better, and then it turns out not to be any better at all, and we allow despair to begin to creep in and take over our lives. Or sometimes we really are pursued by an abusive person or a vindictive person. Sometimes we are pursued by someone who really does have ill will toward us. And as the pursuit continues, we can fall into despair. Sometimes it happens when we lose a person whom we have loved and we lose them to death. And we feel the ache of despair overcoming us. It can even happen when our hormones get out of whack and our brains don't work the way that they should and we fall into despair. It can happen. I tell you, it can happen to any of us. We can allow despair to creep into our lives and take over. But this fantastical saga about these people yearning for freedom and trying to trust God as they move into a new place and yet being plagued by doubt and despair gives us a theological answer. It tells us that there is hope, that we can hang on to hope because we know what God can do. 
this story tells us even when we cannot see a way out, God can make a way out. Even when we cannot see any reason to hope, we can trust in God and hope in God. The narrator tells us about that. Looking in verse 21, the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. It is a description of natural forces at work aiding the Israelites. It tells us that these Egyptian pursuers, under the cover of darkness, kept pursuing and they ended up driving into a sea. And they began to get bogged down. And when dawn came and they could see where they were, they began to have a panic attack. They realized that they were in the middle of a bog, that they had made a great mistake. But the Hebrew authors attribute this natural phenomenon to the working of God on their behalf. One of the commentators I read this week talking about this passage and how so many different strands of the tradition tell this story said this, in spite of their variations, all the sources agree in emphasizing the element of miracle. This agreement should discourage all attempts at naturalistic interpretation. Even if natural phenomena contributed to the deliverance, their coincidence with Israel's need was in itself a miracle. They experienced it as a miracle, as the hand of God working on their behalf. As I was reading through this text over and over this week, it reminded me of that story from our own Revolutionary War when George Washington and the Continental Army were trapped against the East River on Long Island. You may remember the story. It was the summer of 1776. Washington had gathered 12,000 militiamen. He's trying to shape them into a fighting force. Hopes are high. They are feeling pretty good about this. And then through a series of sudden naval maneuvers, all of a sudden the British have landed a force twice the size of the Continental Army. And they begin to march toward them, and they're pinned against the East River, and things are looking terrible. But just before they get there, darkness begins to fall, and the British decide, even though they're only 600 yards away, 
that they're going to stop and have dinner, settle in for the night, for surely they're going to settle this in the morning and rout out these rabble-rousers. It will be the end of this uprising. And so they settle in and darkness comes. But Washington senses the same thing that the British commanders can see. They are so vastly outnumbered, he sees no way for them to win. And so he puts out an urgent call for any water-worthy vessel to come to their aid and help ferry the men from Long Island back to the mainland. And some boats begin to come. But about the time the dawn is to break, only a fraction of Washington's force has been moved across the river. But then all of a sudden, a very dense fog rolls in and covers Long Island. And the British decide, because the visibility is so diminished, that they should wait until the fog clears to advance. The fog stays that day until noon. And in the additional time, the wind also changes, which allowed sailboats to be of help. And all boats begin to come. And by noon on that day, before the fog dissipates, all of Washington's men are able to be ferried across the river to safety. When the fog clears, the British have been left alone on the island. Michael Novak writes about this in his book called On Two Wings. He says this, Many thanks went to God heavenward. For many men, the miracle of Long Island was one of those signal interventions of divine providence, of which both Washington and the author of Federalist number 37 made mention, quote, it is impossible for the man of pious reflection not to perceive in it a finger of the almighty hand, which has been so frequently and signally extended to our relief in the critical stages of the revolution. The early Americans interpreted the natural phenomenon as a sign of God's activity on their behalf, just as did the Israelites in our passage today. You can hear it in verse 30 as the narrator concludes this story. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. Verse 31, so the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. The theological point here is that the Lord acted to protect the Israelites. And when the people experienced that event, they came to believe 
They came to believe. You could say that where there was doubt came faith. And where there was despair came hope. So through the generations, the question is asked over and over, why do we trust in God? Why do we have hope in the experience of desperate circumstances? And the Judeo-Christian answer comes over and over because we know of a God who hears and responds, who can make a way out of no way. I've been asking you, inviting you to be a part of a 40-day prayer experience. We passed out these prayer cards with the prayer of peace or the prayer of St. Francis. This prayer that's attributed to Francis that has been so popular and so many of you enjoyed it. We had to keep printing these prayer cards. If you've been praying with me from the very first day, we're now today 28. If you've not gotten a copy, there's still copies on the counters on either side of the sanctuary. You could pick one up today. I've been suggesting that we use these every day as part of our prayer routine. Maybe even memorize it. Maybe even think and ponder how God might be wanting us to apply this in our own lives. But if you don't have one, pick one up today. Join us for the next couple of weeks as we continue to work on this. But in addition to the prayer, I've also been telling you about the life of Francis of Assisi and these different experiences he had as he grew in his faith. Last week I told you about the incident where he was wanting to rebuild this old church and he did not have resources. So he decided a good thing to do would be to take some fabric from his father's inventory who was a wealthy merchant, sell the fabric and use the money. His father was none too pleased when he found out what had happened. He went to the local bishop, you remember, and accused Francis of stealing and demanded that Francis pay back the money. The bishop sided with Francis' father, and Francis paid back the money. But in the midst of that, he said, Well, you know what? You've also paid for my clothes and Francis stripped off his outer garments and gave those back to his father as well. The bishop gave him an old, worn, unadorned tunic to wear, which Francis put on. He left the church that day full of faith. He believed that he was trusting in God, and God was leading him into the future. But as the story is told, right after that, he's traveling alone down a road. And he meets some fellow travelers. He greets them with a hospitable greeting. But it turns out these travelers are bandits and thieves. And they set upon him and begin to beat him. They're beating him because they want to rob him. But of course, Francis has nothing to give them. They beat him mercilessly. Nonetheless, they leave him lying on the side of the road, wounded and bleeding. And you might think that at that point, Francis would fall into a state of despair. But he did not. Francis did not lose hope. In fact, the story says that 
once he was able to get up and again he was filled with joy because he said now i am sure that i have entrusted my whole self to god even my physical and material well-being Apparently, Francis counted the fact that he survived as a blessing and a protection of God. He reported that he was elated that now he was at a point in his life that he could live his life as did Christ and go from place to place sharing the love of God. Those around him at this point in his life also report that often he would pray for hours at a time. And if you got close enough, you could hear him saying, my God and my all, my God and my all, over and over praying, my God and my all. Do you see how that fits into our asking God to make us divine instruments for divine purposes in the world, surrendering all of whom we are to God, asking God to use us and utilize us. The prayer we've been saying is, Lord, make me an instrument of yours. Lord, Make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. And where there is despair, hope. Amen.